Welcome to the next edition of Business Law Focus. It's great having you with us. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Fritz Milan and Jan Norval from ENS Africa. They're both labor experts. And we want to delve into progress, developments, gaps, what needs to happen when it comes to labor law reform. A really big issue, a critical issue. We're trying to get this economic engine working. And reform of South Africa's labor laws is often referenced as a key avenue to stimulate this job creation that's so desperately needed in South Africa and also to improve investment opportunities. So maybe if I can start with uh, with you, Fritz, and, and I, I saw a really interesting online poll by, by your firm where 85% of the respondents actually said yes for labor law reform. Uh, was that quite a surprise? That Was that half for you, uh, Fritz? Uh, you know, I think it's not surprising because I think there's been many studies that have highlighted uh, commentaries on the low levels of investment and growth in South Africa that there is a difficulty with flexibility in terms of labor law. I think the difficulty is that there's very little movement at present in that regard. And uh, I think that from a political perspective, in the run-up to national elections, it may also be particularly difficult to advance an agenda of the changes to labor laws that, although potentially of significant ultimate benefit to society, may not necessarily be popular uh, in the short term. The process of considering and adopting changes to labor legislation is also really by its by its nature quite slow because it, of course, involves discussions at NEDLAC and it's very difficult sometimes on contentious issues to achieve consensus in the short term. But the sheer scale of the unemployment crisis is of such a nature that it may get forced meaningful discussion. And it was interesting to me that uh, Cosato specifically commented after the release of the latest, even worse, unemployment statistics wow. on what they considered to be the inaction of government in the face of the unemployment crisis. So although there may be differences on how best to address unemployment, there's probably broad consensus that the current course of action um, in terms of economic and legal policy is having very little success in changing the trajectory of the crisis as such. Yeah, and of course, you mentioned unemployment record highs uh, recently in the, in the quarterly stats, 35%, which is truly alarming. Yes. Um, and Jan, possibly if I can bring you in uh, over there, is, is it seems like it's, it's a little bit out of control if you look at youth unemployment especially, um, but we may not even have reached the peak uh, when it comes to the unemployment problem. Um, this, this really indicates that we what we're talking about here is absolutely critical, right? I think that's that's the case. Um, as you mentioned, in, in, in the last quarter of 2021, we saw 35.3% unemployment in South Africa, and the IMF has indicated that it could grow up to 38.6% by 2026, um, and with the World Economic Forum indicating that South Africa is ranked 129th of, out of 141 countries for flexibility in hiring and firing practices. Um, perhaps uh, now is the time to look at labor law reform, and uh, the World Economic Forum has 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 highlighted this as as an area where we could perhaps stimulate job creation. Um, in June last year, they submitted a report um, looking at rebuilding jobs after the COVID nineteen pandemic in in South Africa, and and suggested the suspension of labor regulations. Um, in South, South Africa um, to, to help rebuild jobs. Um, but the, they, they never indicated what those, la- those this, what labor regulations could, could, could change. 
Yeah, no, good point. I know we, we'll get to Nedlock. Uh, Fritz mentioned Nedlock. I know the important discussions upcoming when it comes to corporate sector, but maybe let's delve into that uh, briefly where, you know, I always find it interesting if you look at the U.S., unemployment, uh, you know, these weekly stats, you know, always surprising um, on the downside, and you have less than 5% in total, but yet the U.S. is renowned for very little retrenchment protection at all. And I know you, you've, uh, Fritz and, and Jan, both of you have had a look at retrenchment in some detail. You've written in Business Day recently as well. Um, uh, what should we look at when it comes to, to any loosening in retrenchment? Is that one area where we could uh, get some movement? Well, I think so, Evan, because uh, it, there does seem to be considerable factual support at international level for the notion that um, particularly the right sizing of a workforce is a positive factor in stimulating economic activity and ultimately job creation. And it may be that with the best intentions, there's simply been a misconception mm. at policy-making level and maybe even among South African labor law fraternity of how and why retrenchment comes about, which may then also lead to a failure to produce the right type of legislation to, to serve society. Because at the level of simple economic self-interest, employers, of course, need employees to be able to operate. So employers are simply not inclined to retrench employees that they, in fact, need to operate their business. Trying to force employers through the stricter retrenchment laws to keep employees that they may not need locks in efficiencies that do not help competitiveness of employers and our economy. And a very restrictive retrenchment regime may also create the perception of enhanced risk in terms of undertaking labor-intensive enterprises, which may then discourage international employers from selecting South Africa as an investment destination for those type of enterprises. So the nation, the the idea that preventing retrenchments prevents unemployment may therefore simply be conceptually flawed and wrong. Uh, But what is certainly true is that there's a need for for further analysis in terms of understanding the the problem and maybe then looking at at examples internationally like the US where uh, the protection that is less in terms of flexibility seems to be working for them in terms of creating jobs. Yeah, and, and Jan, if you look at some of the decisions in the courts, um, and and the CC, uh, well, the courts, the labor courts especially, um, return, it's something of a lottery when it comes to these decisions. And is, is that a, a kind of reflection of the intense complexity here that we're dealing with, where you have very difficult uh, trade-offs, but also the law itself is is not, uh, sim- you know, it's not understood and simple simple enough to actually understand. Um, how do we get around that? So I think that. Businesses like certainty, and I think our our current retrenchment laws specifically don't allow that certainty for 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 retrenchments. It's 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 a very common practice for businesses to retrench um, staff, and two years later to still be litigating on that matter. Um, And a business that is retrenching is nine times out of ten in in some difficulty, and now for them to be litigating two years later. Is, is not in the interest, and it's not in the interest of employees as well um, to be litigating for such mm-hmm. a long period after a retrenchment. So I think that the, what we want is a simplification of our, mm. our retrenchment law, and I think we obtain simplification of our retrenchment law by creating certainty. And I think certainty can be obtained by considering a, a number of, of different avenues. The first is a, a pre-approval system. Where before an employer implements a retrenchment, they need to get pre-approval from an authority with tight timelines set with that. So once the employer has this pre-approval for the for its retrenchment, it has certainty that there's no further litigation that will happen afterwards. 
other areas that can be considered is the increasing of severance pay um, in order to avoid uh, litigation. Because at the end of the day, two years down the line, um, if if there has been litigation regarding um, retrenchment, it is normally impractical to reinstate those employees, um, and they are paid compensation in any event. So if employers are willing to pay more severance upfront in order to avoid uh, this protracted litigation, they once again get certainty. And then the third option is with regards to small businesses. Our current retrenchment environment means that if you employ two people or if you employ 40 people, the retrenchment process is the same for you. And we can consider something that Australia has done where for small businesses, they are not required to pay statutory severance pay. Um, and there's simply a, a vetting of a standard form in relation to to retrenchment there. So these these processes of pre-approval, increased severance, vetting of forms for small businesses creates that certainty while uh, allowing for the protection of employees. Yeah, great. I mean, that, that's wonderful to hear all those options out there because, of course, if you look at it in reality, when you ask a tribunal um, or a single uh, individual to really second guess what is an operational rationale is, is a very slippery slope. So, you know, any any assistance that simplifies it and that gives these options, I can definitely see as a, as a serious factor here. Um, and if I can just move on though, uh, to Fritz, so when we're looking at labor law reform, of course, we've got the minimum wage in South Africa, a little bit of controversy around that, obviously economic rationale behind it is is obviously something that is debatable as well but the imperative of course is to support uh, people that are that are struggling and the lower paid workers we've got a huge gap between the high and the low paid workers in South Africa but has enough research for instance been done here are there ways that we can improve the way that a minimum wage um, is is rolled out and and has a positive impact even I think that we probably are light on research. I think mm. it's necessary to take a closer look at the issue because there seems to be lots of contradictory sounds in the market yeah. as to what the impact of uh, of uh, minimum wages in particular can be. And and I think particularly where we see that in recent times, and I think Jan might be able to comment on this, is, is the issue of the agricultural sector where there seems to be a sense that the minimum wage could impact negatively, but uh, I think the overall take might be that uh, because there's such a low level of compliance, it does not necessarily have that impact in practice. So I do think that it's something that does require more research and understanding because it seems as if uh, due to the, the different interest groups that drive the research, you, you don't get a very coherent picture of what the true impact of, of shifts in, in minimum wages is. I'm not sure if Jan has anything further on that score. For me, the, the main thing with, with minimum wage is, is, is its enforcement. And in November 2020, the UCT Development Policy Research Unit um, issued a study regarding the impact of, of minimum wages, and they indicated that it's, it's not having any real impact. And the reason why it's not having an impact is because people aren't following minimum wage legislation. So in the context of wanting to create employment in South Africa, why are we, we legislating, um, legislating laws that aren't enforced but are a consideration which may negatively impact upon um, the employment of, of, of persons? Um, so I think that minimum wage obviously does have, have is a consideration for employers before employing. Um, but I think it's, it's once again, we are not simplifying our our labor um, regulations, because if we are making regulations that aren't enforced, 
Um, we we aren't creating an environment that is that has certainty attached to it and is not going to assist in, in employing um, our large swathes of unemployed. Yeah, I've heard talk also of things like a no dismissal policy uh, during the first twelve months. I mean, is is that something? Is that practical as well? Um, I I think what that does is that seeks to protect current employment. It doesn't seek to create employment. Mm. Um, what we want to do is we want to make it as easy as possible for employers to employ people and to create a, for instance, 12-month no-dismissal policy. We are implementing another consideration which may be a bar for employers employing people. So I think we must rather create incentives to hire and not create further considerations for employers which may dissuade them from hiring persons. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And of course, we've got uh, NEDLAC negotiations coming up as well. Um, executive pay uh, is, is, is one of the areas that, that obviously has to be looked at as well. But um, any other aspects that we can expect out of NEDLAC? I know also employment equity, of course, is, is now targeted on a sectoral basis. Um, do you expect any outcomes there that, that may be uh, relevant to the business community? Yes, I think in terms of, of immediate uh, movement, it's again unlikely to be anything too radical. I think mm. uh, as far as executive pay is concerned, that's always a concern of the, the union movement in particular. Yep. But I think that the difficulty with regulating uh, in that space is that levels of executive pay is, is largely driven by the market. And the peculiarity of our labor market is that whilst there is rampant unemployment on the one hand, there's also a shortage of high-level skills that drives up the price of management. And uh, I don't think it's too apparent how one actually regulates there without uh, without creating difficulties in terms of the ability of the country as such to acquire and to retain uh, management skill, because that is something that's obviously still central to your economic mm. success in many ways. Mm. Um, but there is a different debate that should perhaps be had at NETLAC uh, in relation to uh, whether given the significant wage gap that benefits executives, it would not be justifiable and in the fact in the interest of society for executives to enjoy lesser dismissal protections as compared to, to other employees. And uh, you might recall uh, that there, there was an effort some years ago to introduce um, that type of uh, arrangement, which uh, founded, um, I think, at the end of the NEDLAC process. And uh, given the, the, the significant impact that also that failures by executives to perform their duties has on a broader range of people, uh, a system whereby perhaps the dismissal protection for executives at a, a substantive and procedural level is reduced uh, if a set minimum indemnity is, for instance, paid, this is a, perhaps a direction of thought which uh, would be productive. And again, it's, it's not inconsistent with some other examples in other parts of the world. Um, so that's the type of thing that, that, that might uh, find some purchase. But whether there will be anything radical coming out of those discussions is uh, difficult to see at this point, particularly where we are uh, in terms of uh, the run-up to national elections and so forth. It might be politically uh, difficult to make significant changes over this time. Mm. And, and we're running out of time, but just very briefly, maybe both of you can just conclude on employment equity and, you know, the risk obviously for businesses, um, that they lose compliance certificates. And there's a longer period now of compliance yes. that's, that's been spoken about. Maybe just give us a, a snapshot of what we can expect during the year when it comes to reform and on that front. Yes, I think the, the, the issue and the difficulty with employment equity legislation is again that uh, the practical 
economic impact must be considered in order to avoid a self-defeating effect. Yeah. Uh, because the laudable transformational goals can be lost if the impact on the labor market is a negative one. Because yeah. to, to achieve the societal transformation that one seeks, it's probably not easy to do in a low growth, low employment economic environment. So I think that a balanced and reasonable enforcement approach is probably going to be very important in these circumstances because, of course, you have the piece of legislation that says what it says, but the enforcement approach from the enforcement authority very often uh, determines in real terms what the impact is on the labor market and on employers. And again, enforceability is also a bit of a question because in the past uh, it, it has been notoriously difficult for the Department of Labor to, to to, uh, to expend the sort of resources that are needed to enforce this type of uh, legislation effectively. But a fairly pragmatic and balanced and reasonable enforcement approach will probably be quite important uh, to, to get the right effect out of, uh, out of the, the, the amended employment equity provisions. Um, thanks very much. I, th- I think that sums it up. I think we've covered uh, most of the ground. Um, it's certainly a tough situation getting to you know the, the measures in place. As you say, we need to have enforcement. We need to have better impact and outcomes. And it requires a balancing act. But I think it's a very important year lies ahead on the labor law front. So thanks very much for unpacking this. Great chatting to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us.